Hello and welcome to the Viva Albertos podcast. It is October 9th. My name is Ben Humphrey. I'm the site manager at VivaAlbertos.com. And on this episode, I'm joined uh, by one of our editors, Aaron Schaefer, who our readers may know uh, better by uh, his pseudonym, The Red Baron. Uh, Aaron, how are you doing tonight? I'm all right. How are you, Ben? Oh, I'm doing quite well. I'd be doing better if we, you know, didn't have these two days without baseball in the middle of October to contend with. It does kind of suck, doesn't it? it you, you get in sprint mode, and then all of a sudden it just stops again. Uh, days off during the during the season are bad enough, but yeah, during the off season, it just feels like you've got nothing to do. Uh, it's kind of upsetting. It is, and and on. You know, the news broke of the Orioles signing J.J. Hardy to an extension today uh, with it being an off day and the eve of the ALCS and all. And so naturally, with nothing else going on today, uh, people started speculating about which shortstop the Yankees would sign. And I was just like, man, it's way too early for this. The leaves haven't even all turned, you know, orange, red and yellow yet. (laughs) Like, let's just hold off. On this hot That's, stove. Yeah, that seems real dumb. Are there any shortstops to sign? I haven't even looked at free agent lists yet. I'm, I'm really behind, but I mean, is there anyone to sign? It's it's not a very impressive list. Um, you know, Hanley Ramirez, obviously. Uh, if oh, if, that's yeah. I don't consider him a shortstop. I was about I, I I was about to say that if you consider <laughs> Hanley to still be a shortstop, and I don't know that I do. Yeah. Uh, then he would be at probably at the top of that list. I tend to think they're just going to sign Stephen Drew, um, but we'll see. Um, yeah. We can talk about this when there's snow on the ground. Uh, right now, there's there's cause to be excited because the Cardinals uh, upset the National League West champion Dodgers in four games in the NLDS, and uh, I say upset because I think a lot of folks expected Los Angeles to win the series. Well, you know, I mean, to be fair, I kind of expect them to win the series, too. Um, I, You know, I, looking at it, I mean, it could be that L.A. is a little overhyped, but I think we all kind of bought into that. I mean, they look so scary, and Clayton Kershaw is the best in the world and, and all these things. So, you know, I mean, it, it, when it comes right down to it, you've got to expect them to win. Well, and Zach Greinke is not a bad number two. In fact, he's probably a number one on almost any other team in the majors this year don't you think yeah yeah and and you know you kind of forget he's even there because the guy in front of him is just so damn good Um, yeah no you're right but you know i think granky to me looked unhittable if if they'd have left him in to throw a complete game in game two i mean i think he throws a complete game shutout i mean he was just disgusting he could have thrown 15 innings and they wouldn't have done anything against him It, it was yeah that was kind of ridiculous um, and, and, you know, yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I apologize. I was just going to say, you know, I had to do a question and answer, or I shouldn't say I had to, uh, true blue LA, our SBN Dodgers sister site, uh, sent me some questions to answer about the series. And the last question was a prediction. And, you know, I picked the Cardinals in five, but the reason I did that was because I wasn't really sure that we would win. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like my my Homer default pick is the maximum number of games somehow we win the series. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was right there with you. Team, but I always think we're just going to squeak it out sort of thing. Yeah, that, that works. Yeah, and I thought that would be how it would happen. Like somehow we would just grind out because that's really what happened, right? Like the regular season NL Central race came down to the final game 
you know, somehow the Cardinals won it, uh, despite an underwhelming season at the plate and a lot of pitching injuries. And so I just kind of felt like if they're going to win this series, they're just going to grind it out five games and somehow they're going to win three when uh, Kershaw and Granke very probably will each start two games. And so that was kind of my thinking there. Um, but I understand, uh, you know, some folks have been complaining about uh, the way that the postseason works nowadays and, and the fact that the best teams don't always win. And I got to tell you, Aaron, I was dispelled of the notion that the best team in Major League Baseball will win the World Series in the year 2004. And I haven't really given much thought to that idea since then. Well, I mean, even before that, you look back to 2001 Diamondbacks. They were a good club, but they certainly weren't the powerhouse of you know that the Yankees were that year, I don't think. They just had a couple guys who performed way over their heads. Um, uh, talking about that, that notion that people are complaining about the, the best team not winning. Um, I don't know how many of our readers slash listeners slash whatever they are right now. Uh, listen to the, uh, the effectively wild podcast on baseball prospectus. Um, but yesterday morning, and I know someone mentioned it on the site and then I was listening and it, it's a great podcast. I love those guys. But uh, no, I do too. I try to listen whenever I can. Yeah, they're they're just, you know really great. I mean, they're not nearly as irritating as some of the other sabermetrically minded podcasts where it's just a pain in the ass to listen to. But they uh, yesterday they had on uh, Zach Levine, who's a, a writer for BP, and uh, I, I gotta tell you, he really he was really pissing me off. He, he was. Uh, he was talking about this idea that the postseason has lost its legitimacy, that somehow, you know, all these teams getting past what he perceives as these better teams uh, somehow delegitimizes the champion. Uh, sort of the, the World Series just doesn't matter anymore, in his opinion. And all of his suggestions and all of his complaints and everything were just bitching about how unpredictable the postseason is. And I found myself like screaming at my iPod, which I rarely do, um, that, you know, kind of, I, I don't know. It's, it, this is the problem whenever you take something that is supposed to be enjoyable and something that is, is unpredictable and entertaining and you apply sort of scientific methods to it. Because uh, at some point in time, you turn from, I want to better understand this thing that is very difficult to understand you turn from that to why isn't this thing that is very difficult to understand not going the way I want it to be? Um, you know, why aren't the mathematically better things happening? And it's just, I don't know, I, I don't get that. Isn't unpredictability why we watch this? Uh, I mean, if you could just run the numbers and say who's going to win all the time, I'm sorry, but that's fucking boring. That's really, really boring. And you know, just, just listening to this diatribe that he's going on about how unpredictable it was. I was, You know what it, it, it reminded me of? It's like the guy who writes the algorithms for, like, eHarmony.com sitting at his computer and just screaming at the screen, God damn it! Why aren't people falling in love with the people my math says they should be? I, I just, that's not... It doesn't work that way. You're trying to predict something that just, oh, not only is it not predictable, the good part is that it's not predictable. 
so I don't want to hear this crap of well, you know, we should we should shoot for the most legitimate champion in that the best team as defined by our equations always gets it. Because at some point in time, aren't you getting down to, well, okay, we want the regular season to matter more, whoever wins. But then you can say, oh, but whoever wins isn't always the best team. We Okay, let's go by run differential. So, okay, the best, the team with the best Pythagorean record at the, uh, at the end of the season, that's the, that's the team that we'll, we'll crown. Well, but what about strength of competition? Okay, here's what we'll do. We'll play the whole season, then we'll run the numbers for third-order wins, and we'll give that team the trophy. That's not fun. That's not fun at all. No, I'm right there with you. And and the thing about October that I love is everything goes out the window. You know, you play probabilities. You know, there are all those things. But, you know, uh, Buck doesn't say go crazy, folks, to an Ozzie Smith home run if a computer's running that sim. Right, like Ozzy Smith doesn't hit that left-handed home run. Um, no, he probably doesn't. It was what the only one of his career, or one of only three, or something. Yes, I, yeah, and he had—I believe—he had not had one up to that point in his career left-handed, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. You know, the Cardinals. There is no 2011 World Series Game Six. The 2006 Cardinals don't win the World Series. Yadier Molina doesn't hit that home run in Game 7 of the NLCS that year. So Taguchi doesn't hit his home run uh, in the NLCS that year. And, you know, it's easy for me as a, as a fan of a team with such a low win total winning the World Series to, to celebrate this new or newer postseason format Um you know, and also the 2011 team was a wild card team that wouldn't even have sniffed the postseason, you know, two or three incarnations ago. And but it's still it's fun because it gives us, you know, it gives us three rounds of of postseason baseball, and anything can happen. And I just I look at all of the moments that we've experienced, even the last two weeks. I don't understand how you can bemoan a system that gave us that Royals A's wildcard game. You know, I don't understand how you can complain about a system that gave us the 2011 Phillies Cardinals series or the 2001 Cardinals Diamondback series, which was also excellent. Um, it's just it might be the best division series I think I've ever seen. It, it's the best one I've ever seen. It was just it was absolutely you know, amazing. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying. It was absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the two best teams in baseball basically met in the NLDS that year. Yes. No, I, I told like, my no, roommate. Either one of those teams could have won the championship if they had won. The, the Cardinals that year, if they had won, they would have gone right. And they would have done about approximately the same thing as the uh, as the Diamondbacks did. I, I really do think that, you know. Um, I mean, they may not have looked on paper like the same kind of of juggernaut like i was saying earlier but i think those two teams had the best combination of sort of you know high-end pitching pitching really well uh you know an offense that was doing some spectacular things and just i don't know it just it felt to me like those were the two teams that had more going for them than any other teams and they happened to meet in the first round which you know kind of sucks particularly for us but uh, still, it's one of the best series I've ever seen. That and the 2004 NLCS, two best series I think I've ever seen in my life. Yep, and and I was going to say the, the 2004 NLCS was uh, really fantastic as well. But that's just it. 
right? So we have one year where we're saying, you know, this NLDS series was so amazing. Uh, then we have another year where we're saying this NLCS series was really amazing. And then you have, you know, say 2011, where you have this just miraculous World Series game six, um, you know, and you have just so many opportunities to see just phenomenal, amazing baseball that is kind of imbued with that magic and unpredictability, uh, you know, and we write about it in a way that is very, I think, sabermetrically oriented, but I feel like a lot of that magic has kind of been lost for better and worse. And in October, you can just, you know, you can set aside, you know, all of these probabilities to an extent and, and just enjoy the ride. You know, well, his batting average on balls in play isn't going to continue. Well, it probably won't continue for 50 games, but we aren't going to play 50 games, you know, so you get a Mark Lemke, <laughs> you know, like, no how Mark did this, Lemke. how did this happen? <laughs> you know, like, and it's just so, it's just fun. And I just, I really love October. It's wonderful. You know, it, you, you talk about kind of, it's the downside of the mathiness and, and sort of the, uh, the increased understanding that we have of so much of the game. It's, it's the difference between like a man who sees a, a vintage, like a 1969 Camaro and writes about it, talking about the lines and, and all the things that it evokes in his mind of a certain time and what this car, this sort of muscle car culture and, you know, all the images he gets from, from seeing these cars that he remembers from when he was a child and a man who is a mechanic and works on the 69 Camaro. One of them understands how it actually works, but one of them is enjoying it way more. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you hit the nail on the head there. But in October, you know, we're all the ones just driving the Camaro. There you go. Yeah, you know, you're looking at the and you're like, you know what, I don't care if how the... I, I don't know how to change out, uh, you know valves or anything else on this car but boy it sure does feel good when i step on that pedal and uh speaking of things that i have no idea how they work uh <laughs> how, how about the cardinals offensive attack during that nlds where did where did this power binge come from aaron look <laughs> i know um I would like to say that it's because, you know, John Mabry reads our site and he realized, <laughs> hey, pull power is kind of a big thing. And he told Matt Holiday, hey, I want you to go out there and I want you to pull the ball and hit it over the wall. And he told Matt Carpenter the same thing. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I assume it's just random variation as unromantic a notion as that is. Um, it, it, it's I view knowing that. Right. You know, I mean, I just think and I kind of wrote a post about it, you know, how Mark McGuire, uh, when the Dodgers came to town during the regular season, uh, he did an interview with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And I suspect the Post-Dispatch editors wanted to do this because John Mabry was kind of coming under fire for the way the offense has uh, sagged under his leadership. Um, but, you know, McGuire said, you know, he mentioned Beltron leaving, which is certainly a major part of it. Um, but he also said, you know, none of these guys are really home run hitters, but they get good pitches to hit and they drive them and they will get their home runs in bunches. And I just kept, when I read that, you know, I've always thought highly of McGuire as a hitting coach. And I just kept waiting for the bunches to come. 
And uh, mm-hmm. Ho- Holiday had, you know, I, I feel, you know, in the second half towards the end of the year, Holiday kind of exploded with some some power hitting. Um, and, you know, after Adams, you know, hit that home run and I kind of, you know, started looking back at the series, I was kind of like, you know, son of a gun. We got our our bunches of homers and we also had some yeah, doubles. And the best possible time. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I keep I wish there was some way we could convince Matt Holiday that it's September all year round. <laughs> like we can follow him around with trees with like slightly yellow leaves yeah, like and leaves and stuff. Or we could if if you could like break into his car and, and figure out, okay, here's where he sits, here's how he's going to look at the world and paint red and yellow dots all over his windows so that the trees look like they're changing colors. I, I don't know. And it's, it's so frustrating to see what he is in April and May and then what he is in August and July or August and September. And they don't even look like the same player. It, it looks completely different. Uh, if he could ever put together a whole season of his, you know, second half kind of performance, he might walk away with that MVP that he's never quite been able to bring home. Oh, he he absolutely would, and I think he'd win it, you know, going away. Um, but you know, I wonder if he's more like I don't know, like a bird that migrates. It's just a cyclical, you know, the earth moves and Matt Holiday's body knows, and it just responds. <laughs> you know, like yeah, like a magnetic true north kind of thing. Like you, yes, he knows that it's not time to hit dingers yet. Right, it's 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 not that time, but then it just it just clicks when uh, you know at, at the at the summer solstice. <laughs> um, but how about uh, Matt Adams' home run? I mean, you know, Joe uh, Schwarz on our site uh, broke down the home run. Uh, you know, he's facing Clayton Kershaw. You know, as you mentioned earlier, the best pitcher uh, in Major League Baseball right now a tough left-hander, you know, and Adams, he just, he does not hit left-handers well at all, at least at the major league level. And, uh, Kershaw has a tremendous curveball, and Adams doesn't fare very well against lefty breaking stuff. And yet, uh, that was the pitch he jacked out of the park. Well, wasn't it the first home run on a curveball to a lefty, Clayton Kershaw had given up. I don't know if it's ever or just in several years. Yes, it's something unbelievable like that. That you know he had. I don't think he's ever given up a home run on a curve to a lefty. I might be overstating that. Maybe it's just been several years, but it was something ridiculous like that. And then he throws this this lollipop to Adams. That I mean, I think I might have been able to hit that out of the park, but maybe not. I mean, I you know. I would probably spin myself into the ground trying, but uh, what, what do you think of Matt Adams? I, I'm curious. I don't remember what you too much of what you've written about him. What do you think of him? Does does he need a platoon partner? Is he a guy that could become better at, at hitting lefties enough that he could just play against everyone? What do, what do you think? Well, my my greatest concern with Matt Adams is just his plate approach. He he has a good contact skill and i don't want to take that away from him um or you know minimize that um but it's you know he just he barely walks like at all and yeah his his walk rate this year was what like three and a half percent i think something just yeah 
you look at it and you, and you think to yourself, well, that has to be on purpose. You couldn't do that by accident. When you have that kind of power, you have to be trying not to walk. For like Jeff Francoeur, you have to mean that shit. Right, right. And, um, you know, for the for most of the season, I was actually paying far too close attention to Matt Carpenter's walk rate and Matt Adams' walk rate because I wanted Matt Carpenter's walk rate to be 10 percentage points higher than Adams. And for a lot of he no, but for a lot of the year, Adams walked a bit more in the second half, and I just gave up. I actually haven't compared them since the end of the season, um, but it, you know, I just kept. I, there was like a day, like in July, I was so excited because Matt Carpenter's was like twelve point six, and Matt Adams was two point six, and they were exactly, you know, like exactly ten percentage points apart, and it was such a, a wonderful bit of math. Um, but this year, Matt Carpenter did finish with a 13.4% walk rate, and Adams finished with a 4.6% walk rate. So oh, that's actually, yeah, that's higher than I thought it was. Okay. And and the whole year it was below that almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he started walking uh, more at the end of the year. So I worry about that because when you don't have and you saw it earlier this year with Matt Carpenter and I wrote a post about it many months ago how Carpenter's batting average on balls in play had sagged, his batting average had sagged, and his power hitting was non-existent. But he was still out there with like a 380 on base percentage, which makes him a valuable player. And the reason he had that was because he can draw a walk. And and that gives you sort of a built-in cushion against the vagaries of batted ball luck. And so with Adams, what I worry about is... You know, he hit 288 this year, which is very, you know, a very healthy average. And he had a 338 batting average on balls in play while doing that. Uh, but he only had a 321 on base percentage. And my hope has always been that Adams' power will lead to pitchers being more careful with him, which will in turn kind of feed his plate discipline. And you kind of saw it with Pujols, although Pujols always kind of had a good eye. But in his younger years... Uh, you know, he was a little bit more aggressive. Uh, but this year, Adam's power wasn't quite where you'd want it to be. And I just worry about that. Um, but as far as the left-right splits, I just, I don't really get it. Because, uh, you know, looking at minor league central, his minor league splits versus lefties, he hit 293, three, uh, 293 batting average, a 355 on base percentage, and a 518 slugging percentage, uh, which is quite good. Um, that is pretty good. I, I would take that every day of the week. And, you know, so I look at that and I think, you know, what has changed? And I think, you know, the lefty specialist relievers to an extent and just major league pitchers being better. Um, but still, I feel like Adams has been so bad against lefties that that can't be the whole explanation. And I don't really get it. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I think that some sort of right handed compliment to him would be a, an ideal addition to this team. Uh, you know, even though Ty Wigginton didn't make it to this year, so he could be, you know, in the second <laughs> in the second year of his contract, he could be the right-handed first-base complement to Matt Adams. Um, you know, someone who can hit the way the Cardinals seem to trick themselves into thinking Ty Wigginton could hit um, would be an ideal complement, I think, for the Cardinals in the offseason. But, uh, you know, but that's one of those things, right? Like, we're the mechanic. 
you know, and we've taken that car apart and we've looked at it and we know how terrible Matt Adams is against left-handed pitchers. And I'll tell you what, I feel that that made that home run off of Kershaw all the more enjoyable for me. I mean, I was laughing. I was just so pleased and just amazed at, at what the game of baseball is that Matt Adams hit a home run off a Clayton Kershaw curveball. Sure, it was a hanger, but it, it was just so improbable and wonderful. It was just fantastic. It was. It was uh, It was one of the most surprising and delightful moments that I can remember. Um, you know, it, it's interesting you talk about you know how his, his plate approach is so lacking and things, and it, it's kind of the Tavares conundrum, isn't it? Where you look at a guy who has these remarkable contact skills and incredible plate coverage to where he can get to and hit just about anything. But at some point in time, there's a diminishing return on being able to hit everything because you can only hit everything so well. There's going to be points in time where you're going to hit a pitch that you would be better off just letting go because you can't hit it hard enough to do some damage you're just going to get yourself out. Um, Tavares had a, an at-bat the other night, and for the life of me, I don't remember what, what game it was. It may have been game four. But he came up, and he swung at a pitch that was, I'd say, a foot out of the strike zone, up and a foot outside, and hit it and popped out to the third baseman in foul territory. I, I think that was game four. I, I think it was, and a sort of a, a lesser hitter or a guy with less extraordinary hand-eye coordination who either A, wouldn't have swung at that pitch at all, or B, swung and missed, might have actually had a better plate appearance there because he wouldn't have been able to make enough contact to pop that ball up. And he might have gotten a better pitch to hit later in the at-bat. It's, it's the same thing we saw with Alan Craig early in the season. Craig is a guy who has never walked a ton, particularly considering how high quality a hitter he was. He can put a lot of things in play that he probably shouldn't. And the Cardinals seem to be collecting these guys right now, which is exciting when you have, you know, hitters who come up, they don't strike out. They have great batting average on balls in play. And, and, you know, you've got this lineup that has this sort of chain link effect, uh, effect to it where you never have, you don't come up with a big strikeout in the middle of a rally very often. It's, it's how the team was so good last season. But what happens is you've got all these guys who swing at everything, and eventually pitchers just kind of stop throwing quality strikes to a lot of these guys. And, and I worry that's what's going to happen with Tavares. It's why I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical on his future value, I think, than a lot of people are. And it looks like we might be seeing the same thing with Adams, where a lot of pitchers just don't throw him anything to hit because they know they can get him out. Well, and it's also, you know, when they were talking about the shift and everyone got caught up in this notion that he's beating the shift. And I've never really liked that phrase, although I find myself using it in my writing when I'm talking about baseball, because, you know, we don't talk about beating even a slight shift, right? Like mm -hmm. you don't talk about beating the outfield shift. If they're playing you to pull and you slap a line drive down the left field line, you only talk about it when there's an extreme infield shift, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And uh, with Adams, 
folks were talking about that, and uh, John Mabry did an interview, and he was talking about how they're throwing him these these sinkers low and away, and Adams is just taking what the pitcher gives him and, and hitting it to the left side of the infield. And, you know, it comes down to kind of maybe selection, and it's, I think, a part of what you're talking about, where, yeah, I can hit that fastball low and away, but I'm not going to swing at it because what am I going to do with it? You know, you have to come to me. And uh, I I was talking with Eric Johnson, another of our editors, um, about this. And he brought up, and I've I've tried Googling it and I couldn't really find it, but he brought up an interview with Ken Griffey Jr. in which Ken Griffey Jr. just said, I don't swing at pitches on the outside corner early in the count because they're trying to paint the outside corner with a fastball. And most of the time, they can't do it, okay? But where do they miss? They miss away. So why would I swing? What am I going to do with that pitch? And, you know, you would hope the Cardinals batters uh, can sort of learn from that. You know, and you look even on their own team. You know, a Matt Carpenter is probably a bad example because he seems to have a preternatural sense of the strike zone. Uh, But Matt Holliday is a guy with a low strikeout rate and a very healthy walk rate. And he is very selective about what he swings at um, and has a great sense of the strike zone. And I would, you know, I might even include Johnny Peralta in that group as well. Um, He doesn't walk quite as much as them, but he has an above average walk rate and a a below 20% strikeout rate. Um, And so I... I feel like there's a template there and someone like Tavares or someone like Adams, you know, you're right. That is the risk you look at. And the question is, can they mature as a player and recognize what their pitch is, you know, looking for a pitch to drive instead of going up there and making contact with everything because you have the skill with a bat to go up there and make contact with everything. There's certainly uh, sort of a law of diminishing returns when you're chasing balls out of the zone. Um, but I, I'm actually, I think I'm more worried about that with Colton Wong than I am with Oscar mm. Tavares. Um, because I think Tavares, he does, and, and I think it's kind of, it's like John Jay's <laughs> bad throwing arm, right? Whenever it happens, you take notice. You're like, oh, that throwing arm's terrible. But how many plays does John Jay's bad throwing arm actually impact? Not very many. And with Tavares, when he goes up there and he barrels a ball, you know, even the Howell pitch uh, there in game two where he laced it down the line for a single and then the ball caromed right to Puig. (laughs) And then you've got (laughs) Tavares, you know, booking it super aggressively out of the batter's box, thinking two all the way, and it bounces right to Puig. And he's got to slam on the brakes and dive back into first. And it was just sort of... Mm -hmm. I feel like this year it was the most Oscar Tavares 2014 play ever. And then it ended with Mike Matheny with this super serious look on his face, like clapping, but you couldn't tell if he wanted to kill Tavares or clap for him. Um, but you know, it that was, uh, you've, you've seen the gif of uh, Orson Welles clapping from. Yes. Kevin yes. Kevin. <laughs> Just that very angry staring straight ahead. Yes. Sort of rage clapping. I don't know what rage clapping is until I saw that. Yeah. Yes. It, but that's kind of what it was. But that pitch that he hit from Howell, I don't think there's a left-handed hitter in the league who makes contact with that pitch, let alone yep. shoots it with authority down the first baseline. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, 
but that that sticks out in your mind, right? I guess that's what I'm getting at. All the pitches he takes, those don't mm-hmm. stick out in your mind because pitcher batters take pitches, right? Like that just that's a part of the game. I don't notice mm-hmm. that. But when you have this guy who has this ability to put the bat on the ball almost wherever the ball is pitched, whenever he does that, it's just like, man, I can't believe he just did that. It's you know, it's like witnessing a unicorn or something. Oh, it, it, it's like you know, it's like watching Vlad Guerrero play again. I mean, that's kind of the, the the comparison that Tavares gets slapped with a lot, where you see him, yeah, he doubled on a ball that bounced one time. It was the best thing I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, with Tavares, you know, like you said, you don't think of the pitches he takes. You only notice when he either swings at one way out of the zone, and you're yelling at the television, "Why in the hell would you swing at that?" Or he does something extraordinary with a pitch out of the zone. Um, you know, what, what was the uh, what was the line from Jurassic Park? We got so focused on whether or not we could that we forgot to ask whether we should. Yes. I think that maybe that's the philosophy the Cardinals need to try and instill on Tavares. It's not whether or not you can hit it. You need to ask yourself whether or not you should be hitting this pitch. Um, but as you say, he is such a just a, a, a real outlier in terms of his pure talent in, ter- in, in bat-to-ball skills that maybe he's not the guy to be concerned about. I, I don't know. I, it's tough to say. I mean, we all thought Delman Young was going to be a monster until he got to the majors, and we realized, oh, that 3% walk rate in the minors is a bad thing. Um, but I- expound on your Colton Wong point a little bit. I, I'm interested why you're uh, why you're concerned about him. Well, you know, if you look at Tavares's you know, for what they're worth, like inside and outside the zone, uh, you know, swinging rates and contact rates um, and those types of things. You know, I just, when I look at those, I don't see a hitter who's necessarily uh, chasing all those, all that many pitches uh, in Tavares. Now, that's not to say that he does not chase pitches. Okay, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I want to be clear on that. He does. But he just doesn't do it, um, you know, at a rate that is, you know, too tremendously high. And I, I look at Wong, and Wong's, you know, he's not, um, you know, he's not, uh, he's not really that high either. Um, but I look at him, and I just think sometimes on that breaking stuff, uh, he just looks a, a little bit more fooled. Um, and I it's just hard for me to put my finger on. I've been very, uh, pleased with the, uh, with sort of the whole package of him this year. Um, and I've been pleased with the power that he has hit with this year. And he's just a little bit higher than the league average on swinging strikes. And he's just a little bit higher than average, although just, just a very small amount. Um, but he's a little bit higher than average when he's chasing balls outside the zone. Um, but I look at Wong, and even though he hit for solid power this year, I don't see the power potential that Taveras has. Mm-hmm. And I worry that he's just that Wong is going to be the type of batter that he, you know, he has to hit, you know, 290. To be, although he brought value this year with his legs uh, and his glove, um, and hit about league average for a second baseman. So I, 
you know, he may have proven me wrong this year, but my concern about Wong has, has been that, you know, he's a guy who's going to have to hit for a healthy average to be, you know, a, a good everyday option. And, you know, this year that sub 300 on base percentage has just stuck in my craw all season. And the only thing that offset it was his power hitting. And I just don't know if that, if, if this season is an accurate representation for like the number of home runs that Colton Wong is going to hit every year throughout his career. And I think that's maybe my concern as we're looking at maybe like a 250 hitter who doesn't have the power that he, he showed this season. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, what happens when that power fades and pitchers know that they can attack him? I'm kind of thinking like a Ryan Terrio type of corollary there. You know what I'm saying? Where Terrio flashed some power early, um, but once that power, you know, kind of disappeared, pitchers just went after him because they could just go at, pound the strike zone and they know at worst it's going to be a single. And so he's got to hit for a high average. And that's what I worry about with Wong. Although Wong is better uh, on far better on defense and a far better base runner than Ryan Terrio. I mean, he's he has really impressed me on the bases and in the field this year um, because I wasn't sure how good he would be defensively. I thought he would be solid, and he is a little bit better than that uh, this season for me. Oh, yeah, he's, he's really, really good. Um, I will say this. I think he has markedly superior uh, bat speed to a guy like Terrio. Um, That's a good point. Really, I mean, he, he can really move the bat through the zone. It, it, with, it just has, he must have incredibly strong sort of wrists and forearms and everything because he creates an awful lot of bat speed out of uh, a very modestly statured player. Um, okay, I'm, I'm looking at a Sandgrass page right now. Let's see. 4.8% walk rate, 16.4 on the strikeout rate. That's not so good. Um, 275 batting average on balls in play. Do you think that's going to come up uh, for a player with his speed and left-handed? I I think it will. Um, And I think that, you know, he is a player who was meant to work with John Mabry. Like, I don't know if Oscar Taveras is, um, but I think, like, John Jay was meant to work with John Mabry. Okay? Yeah, that that seems like a a pretty good point. Yeah. and, And I feel like... I think that will come up, uh, and as you touched on his speed, both with the bat and with his feet. Um, but mm-hmm. I think you're going to see him develop, hopefully, some better line drive skills. Although he hit a lot of ground balls in the minors, Aaron, and and that may be kind yeah, of for right. concern. He he, a very well. It's, it's, he's a cardinal hitter. Of course, he hits a lot of ground. <laughs> that seems to be kind of their their focus. They yeah. like guys who put the ball on the ground a lot, and you know it's it's funny to say, but there does seem to be this uh, this focus on guys who hit a lot of line drives, a lot of ground balls, don't strike out, have decent but not always great walk rates, and not a lot of power. Um, Until the NLDS against the Dodgers, and then they're cranking go-ahead home runs. That, <laughs> suddenly the offense looks like what we dreamed it would be all year. But uh, but but to your point about Wong, we've got. A 249 average, 292 on base, that's got to come up. But the 275 batting average, if that regresses to something around a 300 and he hits exactly as he did this year, but with a little bit better luck on bat, on, on balls in play, you're looking at what, a 270 hitter? You're looking at what you're looking at is Skip Schumacher with more power 
an above mm-hmm. above average defense and above average base running, and that's a heck of a valuable player. I think that's really good. Wong was a, a two war player by Fangrass in four hundred thirty three plate appearances this year. I mean, if he hits exactly as he did this year, with a little bit better luck on balls and play, and a full season, he's probably a three and a half to four win player. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think you'd have to take that. The base running numbers are huge. The defense, you know, 4.3 runs above average, which, you know, obviously we know all about defensive statistics skepticism. But nonetheless, it passes the eye test. You watch him. He's really good out there. Yeah, and so, he, he I, has a motor, I, too. concerns are founded, but I think he may just be that kind of guy. And for a while, at least, particularly while he's cheap, that's a really valuable guy, even if he doesn't get any better. Yeah. No, I think he's he is the second baseman of the future, and I think uh, he has now become accomplished, probably in Mike Matheny's eyes, because he hit that home run um, against the Dodgers. So uh, I think, and it it just kind of felt good. It was kind of cathartic for the young man. Like you know, it's it's the opposite of Schadenfreude, right? Like this guy who's kind of dealt with adversity this year, and then he hits this huge home run on the biggest stage, and uh, you could tell he was really excited to have done it, and it was pretty neat to see. So I'm, I'm hopeful after a rocky start, uh, we're going to see uh, his Cardinals career uh, really take off, uh, and hopefully he can continue. He hasn't hit that well in the NLDS, but the, the hits he has had uh, have been nice. He had that double down in the corner off of Grinky. He was about the only one who looked like he was seeing the ball out of Grinky's hands. Uh, he did. It looked like it. What What is the opposite of schadenfreude, I wonder? I, I have no idea. <laughs> schadenfreude is shameful joy, so it would have to be really proud misery. I guess if you're really proud of being happy. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, yes. I think I may actually live my life in a state of like anti-schadenfreude, because I'm really happy of being kind of a depressed guy. I'm, I'm really proud of that. Yeah, that's... There you go. I, there you go. I, I feel like the Germans need to come up with a word for this. They have a word for everything else. They need to come up with a word for this. And hopefully it sounds appropriately harsh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's German. Of course <laughs> it um, You know, I wanted to touch on uh, Adam Wainwright and sort of the kerfuffle that has bubbled up this week. Uh, you know, Mike. One of the things that Mike Matheny has established during his tenure as manager is he is not a wordsmith. And <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the nicest way I've ever heard anyone put it. And uh, two days ago, um, before the uh, the decisive NLDS game four, Matheny had a media availability. And they asked him about who would start Game 5 for the Cardinals. Now, obviously, Adam Wainwright lined up to start that game on more than regular rest. Um, So I think probably the reporter who asked that question was like, "Uh, Adam Wainwright, but I'll ask it. And Matheny said they were, regarding Wainwright, that they were, quote, moving in that direction, end quote, but then said, quote, we also have flexibility of using Lynn with regular rest, end quote. And, and then, you know, Matheny also said, you know, just making sure that Wayno feels right. 
There's no question that Wayno has been fighting it. I haven't made that a secret, and neither has he. It's all going to come down to how he feels. The likelihood of him saying, I can't go, is very slim, but it is a possibility that something might not feel right. And, you know, the notion of Adam Wainwright being physically unable to pitch Game 5 spread across the internet like wildfire. Um, and the Cardinals, Matheny made himself available then before the game and started walking back the comments. John Mosellock uh, immediately started walking back the comments saying, quote, as of right now, Wainwright is our starter for the next game, end quote. Um, and it, it got folks worried, and I think with good reason, because Wainwright has dealt with that forearm tendonitis this year. He had the cortisone shot uh, in his forearm in June and missed the start. And then he dealt with what he described as dead arm during August when he was allowing a lot of runs. And, you know, Wainwright has kind of given his ah shucks, don't worry about it explanation during the postgame celebration of game four. And uh, Matheny walked it back even further today saying, you know, Adam, you know, Adam Wainwright is fine and he's ready to pitch game NLCS game one. And so, but I, I'm left wondering, and I posed this question uh, in the title of uh, a post that I wrote this week on Viva Albertos. Uh, should St. Louis Cardinals fans be worried about Adam Wainwright? First, um, yes, I think we should be. Second, my big question here is what the hell was Mike Matheny t- thinking with that comment? I mean, you, somebody says, so how's Wainwright feeling? You go, oh, yeah, he's great. He's great. It's great. It's like, I mean, if you, you go up to, like, a friend of yours or something, and you haven't seen him for a while, like, hey, man, what's going on? How are you doing? You know, how's uh, how's your wife? And instead of looking at you going, yeah, you know, she's fine, or, oh, you know, whatever, he starts telling you about all the sexual dysfunction they're having in their marriage, that they're not, you know... He's got erectile dysfunction, and he just can't get it up anymore, and she doesn't seem interested, and he thinks she might be cheating on him. And ten minutes later, you're left standing there, mouth agape, thinking, why in the hell did I ask that question? And that's, I didn't want to know any of those things about you, Bob. That's basically what Matheny just did. I mean, someone said, how is Wainwright feeling, or is he ready to go? You just say, yeah, he feels great. And then... If a, new, if a move needs to be made, then you worry about it. You don't tell someone ahead of time, oh, yeah, there, there's a chance he might not uh, he might not start in the division series and, and all these other things. Oh, my God, it was just – it was a shitstorm that was well-earned by him. I just – I can't imagine what the hell he was thinking. Actually well, – oh, sorry. I, I, at first, uh, when I saw the quote, I thought maybe he was being coy – like, mm-hmm. you know, LaRusso would kind of do stuff. I was just getting ready to say something about that. And what it reminded me of was, remember the, the NLDS in 2000, whenever LaRusso was going to start Ankyo in game one, and he sent out Daryl Kyle to answer all the questions? How could I forget that, Aaron? <laughs> it was the most amazing thing, because you're like, holy shit, he, just, he managed to completely diffuse the situation, and I... I will admit, I had a lot of problems with, with, you know, Tony LaRusso and a lot of the things he did. But that man knew how to work the media at times. There were times it went wrong, his Colby Rasmus stuff. You're like, what the hell happened there? But 
he knew how to get what he wanted from the media most of the time. And he knew how to protect his players. Massini, I, I don't know if he was trying to be coy, if he thought it was, I don't know, maybe he thought it was funny. Maybe he thought it'd be hilarious to make everybody worry about Adam Wainwright. But, well, and, and I, yeah. It's just a terrible idea. Oh my God, so bad. Well, and it's, it, you know, it's one of those things. Like, I thought that maybe he was being coy because I first, I saw it on Twitter, right? So I don't have the full context. And then I brought up Derek Gould's uh, article on stltoday.com. And I, you know, it was just like, what? You know, um, <laughs> like, there, there, there was no being coy there. He's just like saying, yes, Adam Wainwright is not physically 100%. And he hasn't been all season. But he's ground through it because that's – or grinded through it because that's what uh, aces do or something like that. Um, and, you know, it was just – you know, it made me kind of worried because I think I had tricked myself into believing that Wainwright's arm was better now because he had pitched better in September and he was getting swinging strikes and he looked sharp. And then he went out in NLDS game one and he – was anything but sharp. He couldn't locate his fastballs, his array of fastballs to save his life. And I was just kind of like, whoa, uh, what happened here? Um, and then to have Matheny sort of say, well, he's feeling bad physically, you know, it made me wonder, did something come up during the game? You know, all these questions are going through your head. And now they're walking it back and, you know, just trying to explain it away like, you know, everything's fine now. He's going to start NLCS game one. Uh, but it's tough to unring that bell, you know, like, oh, we may not start him in the decisive game five because he's having physical problems to he's fine. He's starting NLCS game one. Don't worry about it. It's there's a huge gap between those two positions that the Cardinals have staked out this week. Yeah, it just I don't know. It, it's a terrifying notion that he's still having arm problems. Um, which, but it's, you know, I mean, like you said, we, we don't necessarily know if he's been, well, we know that he's probably been fighting it all season, but we probably talked ourselves into thinking that the physical problems were over because the performance got better, which isn't always, those two things don't necessarily follow. So we may have been fooling ourselves a little bit on that, but I think yeah, we were. Yeah, I, I think we were. I think, we, you know, I know that I fooled myself. I mean, it's tendonitis. How do you cure tendonitis? You take a break from the physical activity that is causing, you know, the inflammation. And Wainwright took one start off and had an anti-inflammatory shot. That's not going to get it done. And so if you don't get that rest, which he will get in the off season, um, I think he just soldiered through it. And he's just trying to get to the finish line, and he can rest in the offseason. But I'll tell you what, when you're in the first year of a $100 million contract, that's kind of concerning. Yeah, that, that deal. I, I liked it when they signed it. So I did I, but I, I didn't. I can't say that I had all these concerns. Um, well, I started having concerns when he threw over 270 innings between the regular season and the postseason in the year before the extension kicked in, you know, like I understand he's the ace and he sets the tone and yada, yada, yada. I get all that, but you need six years out of this guy and you're paying him over a hundred million dollars. If you count his 2013 pre-extension salary, you're paying him, 
uh, almost $110,000, or excuse me, $110 million. And when you look at that, it is an investment, and you need him on the field, you know, for the duration of that contract. And, you know, there's no, it's not, there's no, you know, there's no lack of honor in Adam Wainwright throwing 205 innings in a season instead of 241. You know what I'm saying? And I know that not all innings are created equal, and the Cardinals have an algorithm that they apply to the minor leagues regarding high-stress innings. They've tried to find kind of a happy medium there. And I assume that Mike Matheny and the Major League staff use that information, although how much weight it's given, I don't know. I wouldn't Um, assume that. Well, maybe I'm being too deferential. (laughs) But, uh, you know, maybe they get a printout of it, and then they they laugh and crumple it up and play uh, waste paper basketball with it. Um, But, you know, it's, I just look at it and it was just, it's this weird mindset uh, that Mike Matheny has. It's closers are closers. So when it's a closing situation, I use my closer and he ground Jason Mott into dust and he ground Edward Mujica into dust. And, and it looked like he was maybe going to grind Rosenthal into dust and he still might. And he doesn't seem to be aware of the effect of placing that type of inning load, innings load on a pitcher. And now he has, you know, really leaned on Wainwright in 2013. And then the next year, uh, Wainwright's got forearm tendonitis to the point where he needs a cortisone shot. And he's fighting it through the whole season. Um, and, you know, and... and you know, Matheny then, when he's trying to walk back his comment, you know, Matheny says, you know, and I'm quoting from uh, uh, another Derek Gould, St. Louis Post-Dispatch article, and, and Matheny says, quote, he's just been grinding. There are days when you're grinding when you just can't get it right. He was having trouble with that in game one. He's thrown a lot of innings. He's had a lot of work. That's what your ace does, end quote. And there just seems to be a disconnect between the role that he has assigned him to and the health problems he's having being related to the fact that you believe that a man in that role has to work all these innings. And it's just kind of like, yes, that's what your ace does. You know, what Adam Wainwright is doing right now is what an ace does. And a kind of a disconnect between this innings load that you have uh, thrown on his shoulders because he is the ace and how that relates to the forearm tendonitis. And I hope I hope that John Mosellock and the front office are having a discussion uh, with Matheny about that. But there's not much that can be done about it now because the, the physical ailments are there. Um, so he's indicated they're going to be uh, quick to pull him. Um, and, you know, maybe... Maybe they will be quick to pull him uh, in NLCS game one if it looks like he doesn't have it. I mean, I think they need to be. Uh, if he is physically compromised to the extent where you don't know if he's going to start a, uh, an elimination game five, I think you got to have be watching him uh, with eagle eyes, don't you think? Uh, I do. I mean, I think it's, that's, it's a really scary kind of concerning thing. Um, 
you know, talking about you, you, uh, you mentioned Mike Matheny's kind of mental, uh, his state or his mindset on this. It's a little bit like kind of considering sort of the good China, isn't it? You know, like you have your expensive China that you get for your wedding or whatever, and it's these very nice dishes, and you paid just a, a hellaciously large price for it, and you never use it. And and why do you not use it? Well, because it it was it it costs too much. It's too valuable. Well, it's the nicest dishes we have, so you want to use it, but you can't use it because it's too valuable. Um, you know, Mike Matheny seems to be the kind who puts out the good china every day. And then when it gets broken, he goes, well, you know, it's still our best China. We got to use it. Yes, but it's too valuable to use all the time. Um, I, I don't know how you reconcile those things when it's, you know, it, it's a uh, it's a resource you absolutely have to have that you have to use. But at some point in time, you have to be able to protect that resource as well. And, and I don't think that this coaching staff Matheny in particular, because he is ultimately where the buck stops. I don't think he's doing a very good job of kind of guarding that resource. And instead, as you say, there seems to be this mindset that, well, we're paying this guy a lot of money to be the best, so he's got to shoulder all this responsibility. At what point, though, does it become such a valuable commodity that you have to protect it? Um, well, and how and much of this do you think is on... Adam Wainwright, because I know like Yadier Molina, I, I've, I have felt the same way uh, about how much playing time Yadi has gotten, especially again. Entering... Exactly, the exact same thing. And every year they say, well, we'd like to get him a little bit more time off, and then every year it doesn't happen. And then, but how much of it is the players, right? Because I, you know, I mean, I remember reading this anecdote about Matheny putting on Yadier Molina's non-prescription just style glasses, you know, his thick-framed glasses that he just wears even though he doesn't need them. And as someone who wears thick-lensed glasses, I'm kind of jealous of someone who just decides to wear glasses as a fashion statement, but I digress. Uh, You know, Matheny, you know, put them on and was telling Yadier that he had the day off, you know, and Yadier wants to be out there every day. That's why he's one of the best. That's why he has he will forever have a heart or have a place in the hearts of Cardinals fans. Um, you know, and Matheny's saying, you know, oh, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? You know, you're getting the day off. Um, and, and the reason is Yadier Molina doesn't want the day off. And if Matheny gives him an option of having a day off, Yadier Molina will not take it. And Adam Wainwright, uh, you know, through the reporting about the team that we've seen over the years from Derek Gould and Jennifer Langosh, or Langosh, excuse me, I always want to call her Langosh, but it's Langosh, uh, and Bernie uh, Miklas, Miklas, see, I can't even pronounce it. I've been practicing, too, in front of the mirror. <laughs> I have no idea how his name is pronounced. He always just says Miklas. Miklas, Miklas. And I've been practicing, and then when I go to say it, I, I mispronounce it. I'm sorry, Bernie, if, if you ever <laughs> listen to this, I apologize. Um, but Adam Wainwright is someone who believes in, a, in an ace's workload, and he's someone who believes that that is what you do. And I think it's something that he's sort of taken from Chris Carpenter. Although, you know, Chris Carpenter led the league in, in, in innings pitched in 2011 and look what happened after that. And it's just kind of, you know, at what point do you need to take a step back and say, you know, um, maybe leading the league in innings pitched 
isn't the best thing for my physical health and therefore maybe isn't the best thing for this team and do you need to dial it back you know a little bit to cut down you know say 10 percent even or 15 percent or 20 percent on the innings pitch load uh with wainwright in order to try to protect his health or even yadi do you cut down on the number of games he plays because when when wayne when Wainwright is pitching well, him going seven innings or eight innings or a complete game is great for the Cardinals. Yadier Molina being out there on the field, you know, calling pitches and hitting is great for the Cardinals. You know, not having them out there makes the team worse, right? So how do you how do you measure that? You know, how do you do you take that long view that we've got him under contract for five more years and we need him healthy for those five more years, so we need to scale back his innings? Or do you just keep the pedal to the metal? I think you have to take a long view. And and to your point about you know Molina not wanting to uh, come out of the lineup and arguing his way back in, okay, I, I, you know, I, I understand all that. That's still on the manager. The manager has to be smarter than that. Okay, if your player is telling you, I don't want a day off, I want to get in the lineup, your job as the manager is to say, too damn bad, sit down. And I understand that that's tough to say to an ex-player who prided himself on toughness and everything. But you know what? Just like when you have kids and you tell your kids, steer clear of drugs and steer clear of you know all these risky behaviors even though you yourself did all these things as a teenager you know why you're still telling them to do that because you know better now as a manager you have to know better the players that mindset that's never going to change players don't know what's best for them when it comes to workload they just don't they're like children children don't know not to make bad decisions because they're stupid they're kids you have to know better. You have to be more responsible. And you have to say to your $100 million man, look, I don't care if you want the complete game today. You've thrown 106 pitches in the seventh inning. Sit down. We've got relievers. You sit down, take the rest of the day off, and we're going to manage your workload. Matheny has to be smarter. He has to be the adult here because the mindset of a player is never going to allow them to say for themselves, look, I need the day off. It's just not the way it works. And the first test Matheny is going to have is NLCS Game 1 uh, when Wainwright starts against the Giants. Uh, Aaron, looking at that Giants lineup, uh, what do you see? It's a, it's a weird lineup. I, I, I'm not going to lie. It, it's a strange lineup. You look at it, and there are guys in there that you don't necessarily think a whole lot of you've obviously got hunter pence who has stealthily turned into an mvp candidate when i certainly didn't think that in his first couple years i mean he came up and yes he was extraordinarily talented but he looked kind of goofy and everything he did he just he had kind of that colby rasmus thing going on where he just always looked a little awkward doing everything and you're like well yeah he's an above average player but he doesn't look real graceful and he strikes out a lot and if you throw him a slider down in a way he can't hit it to save his life but he has steadily gotten better and better and better every year. And he's, you know, he's the centerpiece of a championship quality lineup now. Um, between him and Sandoval and, and, and Brandon Crawford, who has weirdly enough turned into an excellent player when I never expected that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very strong lineup. And then, you know, that's not even to 
to remark on who is probably the uh, you know the Giants' best player in Buster Posey. I mean, you know, he's so good. One- oh, he's he's so he's good. so good, man. Um, you know, I mean, you you look at that that one two punch of he and Pence in the middle of that lineup, and there aren't too many teams in baseball who have a better one two in the middle of their lineup uh, that I can think of. Um. I mean, maybe Detroit. You know what? Not even Detroit. Well, yeah, Victor Martinez and, and Cabrera. I think I'd probably take purely on an offensive standpoint by a hair. But beyond that, it's hard to think of too many other teams that have that kind of engine in the middle of their lineup that that uh, that really drives that offense. Yeah, there's. You know, you want to. You know, you you look around the league. You know, McCutcheon is an excellent player. Uh, Harrison had a very good year. Um, you know, they might develop into that type of heart of the lineup or core of the lineup, uh, whatever phraseology, you know, you want to use. You know, I'd say Votto and Bruce maybe used to be that, um, but they, man, they have fallen on hard times. It's been pretty shocking. Um, but uh, That's, well, you know, hey, that's uh, that's kind of what Walt Jockety does. I mean, we saw <laughs> You know, it, it looks really good for a while, and then it's good enough you know, to get him an extension. Yeah, the short-term focus starts to start, starts to really kick in. So, um, and I I saw today that it appears very likely that Michael Morse will be on the Giants' uh, NLCS roster. He was left off of the NLDS roster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's also terrifying because I remember him from the Washington series a couple years ago. I can't guarantee that he hit a home run every time he came to a bat, um, but I feel like he probably did. So, you know, it's uh, I'm not looking forward to seeing him. He's like the Bud Norris of, of hitters as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to, to seeing him uh, either. Um, but you look at that lineup, and it's just, you know, it's got a lot of solid uh to excellent hitters in it, I feel. I mean, it's not, it's not an overwhelming lineup. Um, like I feel the Dodgers. I mean, I went and watched uh, Game One uh, with one of my friends, actually uh, Ben Godar, who's been uh, writing the Retro Birdos pieces for uh, us at Viva Albertos. Um, I don't know if you oh, okay. if you've caught any of those, um, but we went to a barbecue joint uh, by his place. Uh, and he turned to me and he was just like, man, this Dodgers lineup is deep, you know, and, and he was right. Like it's, it's a tough lineup and, and the Giants lineup, I don't think is as daunting as the Dodgers lineup, but there are a lot of guys there who can hurt you. And, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, um, how the Cardinals pitchers, uh, attack that San Francisco lineup. Cause I thought that they did. You know, by and large, obviously, uh, Wainwright had the struggles in game one. Uh, but that rest of the series, man, I thought they did an excellent job of attacking the Dodgers hitters, the Cardinals pitchers. I thought their game plans and the execution of those game plans was really good. Oh, it, it absolutely was. Um, to your point about the Dodgers having a really good lineup. Yeah, it's amazing what a quarter of a billion dollars <laughs> Five, isn't it? It's just shocking. And it may um, not have but, even been their best lineup. Like Van Slyke is probably better than Crawford. You know, like 
Yeah, he might be. I, I well, didn't Crawford have this remarkable second half or something? Yeah, else? yeah, he did. But I still yeah. just I don't know. You know, I I still I just I'm not quite sure. Um, it looks like we're gonna see uh, Bumgarner, Hudson, and Peavy uh, to start this series off. And Madison Bumgarner, man, I mean that's a fun story, and he's just turned into an absolutely terrific pitcher. Yeah, he uh, he he's really really good. And at this moment, doesn't he? I don't remember exactly who all was in the 2007 draft class, but he's one of the very very few success stories from that the first round. It was just a, an, an awful first round. Uh, it was the year of, of Cosmo, the Cardinals. Uh, I know David Price went first overall that year, I think, so that's really good, and Bumgardner. But outside of those two, it was a really weak class. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he has turned into just a, a, a real monster. Um, and it worries me for the Cardinals specifically because they do have so many lefties, and I don't know what his splits are specifically. I feel like I probably should have researched that before we did this, but, you know, I'm not so much on the uh, on the research. I would prefer to just say things, pull them out of my ass, and then have someone correct me that I just well, later. I will. I will take this as an opportunity to plug Joe. Joe is doing a pitch effects analysis of Bumgarner uh, at Vivo oh, Verdos cool. tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. I like when he breaks down the pitch effects data on the opposing pitchers. I think that's a, a fun read, and and we'll that's get out. Yeah, it's really really useful and interesting. So cool. Um, so we'll get that from uh, we'll get that from Joe uh, first thing in the morning, um, but he has uh, you know I feel like he's just developed into a well-rounded pitcher. Um, you know, looking at his his splits, I just brought it up on FanGraphs. Uh, he faced 686 right-handers and 187 lefties. Right-handers posted a 241 batting average, 291 on base percentage, 393 slugging, which works out to a 301 weighted on base average. Lefties hit 216, 246, 293 for a 239 weighted on base average. So you are looking, you know, Colton Wong, uh, Matt Adams, you know, John Jay, uh, despite John Jay's great splits against left-handed pitching during 2014. Um you know, you're looking at a pitcher in Bumgarner who did a good job this year, uh, neutralizing, did a very good job actually neutralizing all batters, but especially left-handers. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was afraid of. Um, what do you think the chance? Well, there's no chance. I shouldn't even ask that question. Don't be stupid, Aaron. I was going to ask the question. What do you think the chances are we see a, a holiday Borges Grichik outfield in Game One? And then I realized, well, that's a really dumb thing to say, Aaron. There's no chance of that. So. I, I would give it some consideration. You know, I don't understand. You know, he had Matheny has come out and said, you know, the uh, the outfield is not a petri dish. You know, they're here to win. Um, and you know, like I respect that. But Gritchick is hitting 188, 230 for a 188 batting average, 235 on base percentage, and a 375 slugging during the playoffs. You know, and he sort of made a point of talking about the hot hand, and now it seems like if, if you're playing the hot hand, you know, maybe you should sit the cold hand. <laughs> and, yeah, that, uh, of course, the problem is he's allowed all these other outfielders to cool on the bench. Um, but you 
you broached the subject, and I was kind of noodling around the, the notion, the same idea at the time you wrote it, and you wrote it uh, very well, that you weren't so sure that the holiday Borges J, so holiday and left, Borges and center, J and right, outfield alignment was not the Cardinals' best outfield at that point in time. When was that? In mid-August, late August, I think you wrote that. and uh, Sometime around in there, yeah. It was... It was after Tavares had had enough at bats that we were beginning to get a little frustrated with him, and you know Gritchick was still swinging, missing at everything soft. So somewhere around in there, I think. And and I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I don't see Gritchick as a long-term solution in right field, no matter how fun it is to watch him steal home on a pass ball when he starts to play on second base um, and make bad dives at plays and like get hit in the face with balls. Um, you know, like I realize that's all doing the game the right way and he is fun to watch and he brings a dynamism, uh, to his game. He's just an all out player. And you know, that comes with good and bad things. The bad thing about it is that he takes some very vicious hacks and comes up empty with some regularity. He's struck out over 26% of the time at the major league level this season. Um, and then he also, he took a really bad route on that ball Puig lace down into the corner. And, you know, I don't think he was ever going to throw Puig out at third. I think it's uh, actually against the laws of physics for a human being to be able to throw Puig out at third base from the right field. Um, but, you know, he his outfield play is not as good as I thought it would be. Um, and I actually, I think I like Jay in right field uh, and Borges in center a lot better for this team. Uh Maybe not against Bumgarner, but you know, against Peavy and Hudson, I, you know, I'd be interested to see how that works, especially in San Francisco with that huge outfield. I think you have to play oh, Borges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if Borges doesn't start uh, when Miller starts in San Francisco, you know, I don't know that Peter Borges will will ever be a realistic outfield solution uh, for the Cardinals. Um, because that is, you know, an extreme fly ball pitcher in San Francisco, Peter Borges needs to start, but I, I think he has to start every game in San Francisco, to be honest with you. I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, to your point on Gritchick, I think he can be a very useful player. I I think I might be a little bit more uh, sanguine about his prospects than you are. Um, I think, I think he's a, a really good uh, a really good bet to be that platoon kind of guy that the Oakland Athletics have, have hit on so much the past couple of years. Um, the problem is, you know, you put a guy in a situation to succeed. He succeeds a little bit, and then you decide that he's better than you thought, and then start putting him in all situations. The problem is, the you know, the reason he was succeeding isn't because he's necessarily better than you thought. It's because he was in the best situation possible. Uh, And I think going forward, he could really... I think he has a spot on this team long-term as a lefty killer. I I really do. I think he can do that. His splits throughout the minors have been really, really strong. To date in the majors, he's hit very well against left-handed pitching. Um, He's never going to be... I don't necessarily know that he's ever going to be more than a platoon outfielder or platoon whatever you try to make him into. 
but I do think he has an opportunity to be that. Um, I wonder if somebody shouldn't give him a first baseman's mitt over the offseason and say, here, see if you can learn to play first and maybe spell Adams over there occasionally. Uh, you know, speaking of, of Adams, pretty dramatic splits. Maybe Gritchick could learn to play over there, and he might help to ameliorate that. Um, but I, your your point is definitely well taken as to he's not your best option every day in right field. Uh, no matter how exciting he might look, he's just not that guy. Uh, you know, and, and I... I don't think there's any chance we see Peter Borges make a start in this series, no matter how much sense it makes. I really don't. I think for whatever reason, he's a guy that Matheny just doesn't believe in. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, I, You know, Borges had that slow start, but he had a pretty good second half. Um, you know, and then Gritchick gets called up and hits a little bit, and they're touting you know, these changes that he has made since he has been recalled. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, Borges was kind of the odd man out. And I just, I don't know what, you know, they're necessarily looking at because, you know, again, kind of like a, a Colton Wong type season where, you know, Borges brings a lot of value with his uh, base running and with his defense. Um, but I, I want to say, Aaron, I think you and I have a very similar view of Gritchick. Um, I view him as like a fourth outfielder type, and I think you are—you hit the nail on the head. I think he could be a lefty killer. You know, having watched him uh, play the Iowa Cubs as a Memphis Redbird, and watched him flail at Triple A breaking balls, you know, he—he's looked a little bit better. I—I I, I should be clear, he's looked a little bit better here these last few weeks of the season against breaking balls. It looks like he's recognizing them a little bit better, which is very heartening. If he can, if he can recognize those breaking balls and and change his approach uh, a little bit in that way, so he's able to lay off those and kill fastballs uh, when they're thrown, if they're ever thrown to him, um, you know, maybe he does become a primary outfielder. You know, it, it's easy to talk about his inability to hit breaking balls, and then always in the back of my mind is, you know, but Alfonso Soriano had a pretty nice career. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely yeah that's that's a good point i mean if you threw soriano a slider down and away he could look helpless yeah but there were also times when he would just you know he, he did some amazing things because pitchers a pitchers can't always consistently uh, execute that perfect pitch to get him out and also i mean you know you can't throw nothing but that pitch to a hitter eventually they're going to figure it out and lay it off um I, I don't know that Gritchick ever becomes a, a starting outfielder, but I think he definitely has a place on the team. Um, like you said, I, he looks a little bit better against off-speed pitches. I don't know he's ever going to be great against them. To a certain extent, you know, pitch recognition, I think, is less a learned skill than we like to think it is. I think sometimes it's just whether or not a guy can pick that pitch up, and there's only so much progress you can really make in improving that. No, I think you're onto something there. And Jim Edmonds is actually someone who really, uh, you know, kind of opened my eyes in that way that you kind of either have it or you don't. You know, and he was, you know, he was, you know, he has excellent vision. He can read the catcher's signs from center field. You know, like, I mean, that's insane to me. Or, you know, like he claims he could. And, 
you know i'm sure he probably could. I mean, he's ambidextrous. I mean, he's just a, he is a genetic, like, freak. And, you know, he also was really good at picking up uh, pitchers, tipping pitches. He could pick up the changes in their mechanics. And I remember, I can't remember who the pitcher was, but I remember this anecdote in spring training. He was standing next to the coaches, and he just started calling out every pitch while the pitcher was in the windup what he was going to throw. <laughs> And the coaches were like, what? Yeah, I think I remember that story, but I don't remember who the pitcher was. Shoot. And, but, you know, but it's like, yeah, some guys just have that ability. And I don't know, you know, where does that skill lay, lie kind of on the natural versus the learned? Because I think there is a lot, you know, you have to be able to adapt, right? Um, but, mm. you know can Grichik develop that ability to recognize right-handed breaking stuff, lay off it or foul it off or do whatever he needs to do. I mean, that's really the question for him. I mean, he had seven strikeouts and 17 NLDS plate appearances. Uh, You know, that is, that's That's dark. That's dark stuff. That's a lot, man. And um, they cannot, they just can't have that. You can't have that in the lineup. You know, I enjoy three true outcome oddities as much as the next guy, uh, but you can't have a guy who's striking out seven times and 17 plate appearances in a series, walking once and having, you know, th- three hits. That's just, even if one of them's a home run off Clayton Kershaw, that was really fun to watch. That was, uh, was such a fun pitch. And he, you know, he runs the base as well. You know, that ball in the dirt in game four that he took second base on was just. You know, you would show that highlight to little leaguers on how to take a secondary lead and be aggressive when you see a ball on the dirt. Like you would use that to teach children how to run the bases. And so I don't want to sound like I'm being completely negative on him, but man, those those strikeouts, it's it's mm-hmm. difficult to watch. And they just they can't they can't keep trotting that out there in the lineup every game of this postseason. They just can't do it. And so, you know, I like whether it's Taveras, whether it's Borges, I, I think they need to, to be open to making a change, and I hope that they do. Um, I think they need to do it also. Um, you know, I, mean, I think long term, the best the best use of, of Grichik is, like you said, it's a platoon guy, a lefty killer, a guy who, when he gets in the game, he can affect it with that sort of dynamic combination of power and speed. Um, you know, he, I actually I just realized, you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me a little bit of Drew Stubbs. Oh, yeah, I can see that. That's kind of the guy he puts me in mind of. And Drew Stubbs has had a, a nice major league career. He's not a starter, but when he's in the game, he can affect it with the things he does. But he has to be used in the right way. Uh, the question, of course, is whether or not the Cardinal manager currently is the guy to figure out how to utilize that. Um, and I'm just not sure that Mike Matheny is. Well, on that high note, we have been talking for quite a while, so I think we're going to need to wrap this up. So I'm going to ask you, Aaron, uh, how do you think the NLCS finishes? Who wins, and and what's the game count? Okay. um, Do you want optimistic head uh, prediction, Aaron, or do you want terrified of the Giants because every time we see them it ends poorly? Uh, prediction, Aaron. Would, would you can choose one or the other. Uh, I will. I will bring up 1987 to you. 
and hopefully that will put you in an optimistic mood. Optimistic, your brain will become optimistic, and you can give us that prediction. Ooh, okay. Um, trying to to think of 1987. I I remember the Metrodome. I remember lots of uh, talk about the air conditioning units being turned on and off because the twins are apparently cheating. Yes. Uh, I remember Chuck Knobloch doing a lot of bad things. I can't remember the Giants not playing well. I can only remember the twins breaking my seven-year-old heart. You don't, you don't remember um, Lawless's home run and bat flip, man. I only remember bad things. It's, it's <laughs> You know, a couple of years ago in the, uh, the 2011 World Series, I wrote a series of pieces for, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of the, it was, they were affiliated with slate.com and I wrote a series of pieces for them. It was their sports site or whatever. And my first one after uh, game one, which the Cardinals actually won was I was talking about how I watch baseball. I watch baseball in a perpetual state of white knuckled terror and dread I can't enjoy games while they're going on. I am the most negative, just uh, doom and gloom kind of person the whole time I'm watching a game. Afterward, I'm I'm okay, but yeah, I I remember bad stuff way more than I remember good stuff. Um, Going with my head, I I would say I think the Cardinals have a slight advantage in this series. Um, I think the offense is playing really well right now, which we don't know if it continue or not but i like it um i don't think the giants rotation is nearly as imposing as it has been in the past Bumgarner uh, accepted and maybe vogel song because he seems to always pitch well in the postseason i can't back that up with stats he just seems to have some magic but the giant bullpen is really shaky it's a weird bullpen because particularly their closer isn't very good. Santiago Casilla, not very good, but they have a few intriguing arms. I like the Cardinal bullpen better, even if Rosenthal has been really kind of, uh, you know, scary this year. I'm going to say the Cardinals should win it in maybe six games, maybe seven. I'll, I'll say six games. I have absolutely no emotional confidence that's what will happen. You know, if I'm going with my heart, I think they're going to get knocked out in five, and we're going to have to watch the the Giants celebrate on their home field going to the World Series again and doing this even year thing they have going on. But logically, looking at it sort of analytically, I think the Cardinals should have enough to get past this team. I think they can match up better against this team than they did the Nationals. And, and, well, I mean, Nationals are probably just a better team, so of course they match up better. That was stupid. But I think the Cardinals should have enough to get by the the Giants in a long series that ends here in St. Louis. Six, maybe seven. Probably six. Uh, I'm actually right there with you. Uh, I'd have predicted the Cardinals. I'd I'd have predicted the Cardinals in six if I had gone before you. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it go seven, uh, baseball being what it is. Uh, one team will probably sweep the other or something. <laughs> I'd just see this awful, soul-crushing sort of series where the Cardinals don't manage to hit a single home run. Uh, they go back to, you know, the batted ball, unlucky, you know, line drives at the right fielder and no power kind of thing that we saw in April. I'm sure that's what they'll go back to, but uh, here's hoping that's not... 
Well, I will predict that the the hitting barrage will continue, and the Cardinals uh, will uh, ride that to victory on top of solid starting pitching. Uh, on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up this extended NLCS preview edition of the Viva Alberto's podcast. Uh, my name. LCS program, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, you're on it, so. <laughs> I was say, you might as well just tell people, look, he can't write less than 2,500 words, and he can't say less than 2,500 words. Well, you've proven that. We don't need to tell them; they've just lived it. So, <laughs> on, on, I have a problem with brevity. For for uh, the long-winded Aaron Schaefer, my name's Ben Humphrey. Thanks for listening, and go Cardinals. Bye, guys.